0: I'd like to ask everyone to mute their microphones now. Please only turn your mic on when you're going to speak. Use the chat feature to message the group to share next or wave your hand. This meeting intends to follow courteous principles of privacy and anonymity. But if you feel your privacy is at risk, please disconnect now. Everyone please respect the traditions and anonymity. Are you okay? We're being recorded, Tim. Yeah, you've... that's
1: fine. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Thumbs thumb stopped.
0: Oh, thank you. Sorry, I didn't see. Our purpose, the members of this group are committed to practising the 12 steps as outlined in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is our intent to share our experience, strength and hope for those who suffer from the disease of alcoholism and addiction as as that we may carry out our primary purpose To help our colleagues and addicts recover through the 12 steps. We welcome all 12-step programs here. This meeting is seven days a week sharing our experience using the big book awaiting process going through the big book. If you are new we are glad you're here and welcome all questions. This meeting will last for an hour but connection will stay open afterwards to allow all with a desire to share to do so. Please join me in the third step prayer followed by five minutes of meditation. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them, bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And we've got five minutes of meditation. Thank you. And uh, Lisa, could you read more about alcoholism for us, please?
2: I'm Lisa and I'm an alcoholic. A portion of chapter three, more about alcoholism. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralisation. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better.
0: Thank you, Lisa. and. Tim's our speaker, will now share his experience. What topic
1: did you choose, Tim? Well, one will develop, it will ferment during the course of my talk, if I may. So, is that all right mm-hmm. if I just That's develop? One? Yeah, thank,
0: thank you, you, Tim.
1: You. Over to you. Lovely to see a few faces. A little more wouldn't hurt. It's always lovely to see the people I'm talking to. All I can see is yes, lots of black screens I can see. But anyway, my name's Tim, uh, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, well, that's a very important statement in itself. I am an alcoholic, not was an alcoholic. I've got alcoholism, not alcohol And that's important for me to remember because uh, my last drink was on the 24th of July, 1993 which by any reckoning is, well, it's quite a long time ago. It's over 29 years since I've had a drink. I'm in my 50s now. Um, I look it in daylight in in, in Zoom in the evening with low lighting. Gosh, it can take years off. But it's been a long time since I've had a drink. And a person might conclude, well, it's over. Alcoholism is over. And is it let me just go and turn a light on this man That's a little bit better. There we go. And there's a meeting here in London. I'm in London. There's a meeting here where uh the name of the the name of the meeting is we came for the drinking, but we stayed for the thinking. And I think that the majority of the people in the room are a few months sober, if that. There's a fair amount of relapsing and almost no one's completed the steps. If I were them, I'd still be worried about the drinking bit. (laughs) Let's sort that out first. And you know what? You sort the drinking bit out, the thinking bit sorts itself out. Because to sort the, I'll tell you what, to sort the drinking bit out, obviously you've got to be physically sober, being physically sober really helps with sobriety it really helps to be sober in order to understand what people are saying it's hard enough when you're sober that if you're zonked out on alcohol or frankly anything else the chances of anything going in are pretty remote often i talk to people in aa who are i'm nothing i'm not, no opinion on whether anyone should or should not be on medication. But I tell you, a lot of people in AA, it's you feel like you're having a conversation with a brick wall because nothing's going in. If they need to be on medication, fine, but they're a communication problem sometimes. Uh and that's not advice, it's an observation. Uh to do something about my drinking problem, I had to. And this is bad news if 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 you're not familiar with how aA works, this will be very bad news. Form a relationship with a power greater than yourself which you spend the rest of your life serving that's pretty tough news now you only have to swallow it a day at a time my laundry, my dishes, the other things I do if I stacked up in my mind all of the laundry I have to do for the rest of my life what an order I can't go through with it I can handle a day's worth of laundry I can handle a day's worth of of serving God but before that's going to make sense I've got to explain why I think that's necessary Those little steps on page 59, they're sneaky little things. They look so plain, so ordinary, but they're uh, they're booby-trapped. Don't start the steps unless you're willing to be booby-trapped by them. And I'll tell you what I mean. So step one is very simple. Very simple. Sometimes people make a great big meal out of it. The steps were designed to be taken by people who were barely off the alcohol, and it didn't require a college degree. It didn't require highlighter pens. They didn't have, or whatever you call those marker pens in America, I know they're called something different, Sharpies or something. They didn't have any of those. (laughs) Um, They weren't necessarily educated. The steps work for people without an education. So the understanding of them has to be simple. Step one is really simple. I'll tell you what it is for me. When I drink, I drink too much. Why? Because I do. Not because I'm dumb. Not because I'm mad. Not because of my childhood. Not because of bad influences. Not because I've had a bad day. I drink too much because that's how I drink. That's not a problem unless you have problem number two. What's problem number two? I hear you ask. Problem number two is bad experiences with alcohol do not deter me from a drink. End of step one, effectively. Those two points. Doesn't matter how bad my drinking got, a drink periodically would seem like a good idea. Not all the time. There were times when the bad experiences were enough to deter me. There were times when they weren't. I've heard people in meetings say, well, I'm not going to have a drink because I know where it would take me. Good luck with that one. Right now, you know where it would take you. In half an hour, your brain may not remember where it would take you because it may be playing a different script at that point. So I've got a tricky brain, stone cold sober. And I'll come to the technical term for that in a minute. But basically, step one, very simple. When I drink, I drink too much and nothing can fix that. So I've got to stay sober, yet I have a mind that's going to say a drink is a good idea. That's the diagnosis. What's the prognosis? The prognosis, if that is my problem, is that I have a condition which is three things. Count them. Progressive, fatal, incurable. I'm going to say it again. Progressive, it's going to get worse. Fatal, it's going to kill you. And incurable, you're stuck with it. And the only solution that's available is a relationship with a power greater than myself. In other words, and this is the sleight of hand in the first three steps. I'm always going to be an alcoholic, which means there is a part of my mind, there will always be a part of my mind that is thirsty. It's not mean. It's not evil. It's not even dumb. It doesn't think. It's not capable of thought. All there is is an embedded memory of what drink did for me when it worked and it shoots these messages up to my frontal lobes and says, let's go for a drink. Now, the reason this is so dangerous is it overrides all other thoughts. It's like people that waltz past the queue to a nightclub because they're on the VIP list and they go straight through to the VIP lounge. My thoughts of drinking are like that. They're on the VIP list. They go straight past the bouncer, straight into the VIP lounge, and we go and have a drink. So the horrible bad news is that for the rest of my life, I must not do what my mind tells me to do i have to have a different system for living than doing what i think is best that's how the world operates people do what they consider to be the best thing and they might reason it through they might operate on instinct people operate in different ways but it all boils down to the same thing they do what they think is best I've got to not do that for the rest of my life. I've got to operate in accordance with a completely different system. The tricksy bit of the first three steps that I alluded to earlier, I'm gonna explain what it is now. In step two, it says, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to insanity. And you're like, wait, wait, whoa, whoa. (laughs) I have not admitted that I'm insane, but the wording of step two presupposes I am insane because it, it is suggesting I need restoration to sanity. What does restoration to sanity? Only the insane need restoration to sanity. So the subtext of step one is: the fact that I'm an alcoholic means that left to my own devices, I'm insane. I may not look insane. I may not sound insane. I may be sane 364 days of the year. I may be on that 365th day. I may be sane for all but 10 seconds. But in those 10 seconds, someone offers me a drink and I say, yes, please. I only need to be, that insanity needs to kick in only once for me to be off to the races. If you know people who've relapsed, you'll know many never come back. This is a pretty fatal form of insanity. So the relationship with a higher power um, is the answer, which means I'm I'm not doing what I want. There is a fundamental commitment, 24 hours a day for the rest of my life to do what I believe the higher power thinks I should do now that isn't enough the reason why we have a fellowship we have steps traditions concepts sponsorship and service is I don't know if you've noticed but very occasionally people who think they've got a relationship with God haven't they will sometimes say and do things which are a little bit off they drink (laughs) kool-aid or encourage others to drink kool-aid um let's not name other names point being the capacity for self-delusion is staggering in someone like me and in most alcoholics i've known so it requires a system you can't just say well i shall put myself in hands of God and think it's going to happen because it won't. A thermonuclear device needs to be placed inside the heart of the ego and then detonated. What is that thermonuclear device? Steps four through nine. It is, And the, the purpose of that is not information. It's for me to recoil with horror at the idea that I should trust what my own lower mind says, there is a higher mind, which is the real me. But I've been fooled into thinking that my lower mind, my ego, is who I am. And it's not. My ego is not, as my Texan sponsor repeatedly says, my amigo. The ego speaks in my voice. It says it's it's on my side, but it has nothing to offer by way of defense against the world, which it says I've got to make my way. Nothing. Rely on me, it says. And I say to it, what have you got? And it goes, I don't know, but rely on me. Let's go for it. So this relationship with God. Um, now the first nine steps, I think people are pretty good these days at doing the first nine steps. I think largely because of the internet, we get to hear people from the other side of the world the other side of the country, the other side of the city. If you were in a terrible meeting in, or terrible part of AA 25 years ago, you would never know that AA was done differently elsewhere, unless you went there. Now, very easy. So if you're in a terrible meeting, all you have to is log on somewhere and you think, my God, there are people who've actually recovered. There are people who are happy. This was news to me a little while into AA, that there were people in AA who were happy, who were thriving, who've reconstructed their lives. I think we're getting really good at that. So there's lots of good information being shared. I think what we're less, this is an opinion. I think what we're less good at is keeping people after after the ninth step is complete. I see a lot of good people drifting after a few years. And I did it. I ended up in the multi-fellowship shuffle, shuffling around, taking dividing myself into 47 different problems and going to a different fellowship and different workbook for each. Multiple sponsors, so confusing. Um, I go to AA, I also go to Al Anon. Uh I qualify for a dozen other fellowships, but frankly, there is one problem, which is me running the show. There is one solution, which is to ask God for direction and strength. I've got to stay in the driving seat because I'm the one that has to take the action in my life. If I'm, I get up at 6.15 in the morning because I set an alarm and I have to set the alarm, God doesn't set the alarm. When the alarm goes off, I have to haul my legs out of the side of the bed and get up. God is not going to do that for me. Now, as soon as I'm up, I I start praying. The first thing I do. But I've I I've got to be in charge of the action. I'm like the manager of the shop, but God is the owner, and God gives me the directions as how to. I've got to take the action. God, God gives me direction and strength. But there are, there are a few things which I believe must remain in place for the rest of my life for me to, to have a chance of actually staying sober for the rest of my life. I'll tell you what those three things are if you're interested. I, even if you're not, you're going to hear them. So those three things. Number one, continued sponsorship, which requires being candid not exhaustively dripping out every last turn of thought. No, headlines. What's actually going on with me? Telling my sponsor the truth. As I say, not at huge length. That he hasn't got time for that. Headlines. I've learned how to tell the truth quickly. Facts. Factual, accurate, concise. Truthful, specific, and he gives me direction and I follow it. Um, the my uh, uh, and this is very unpop What I'm about to say is incredibly unpopular. My approach with my sponsor is whatever he says is yes. My response is yes, sir, no, sir. Three bags full, sir. My sponsor is like, if they want to do that, fine. If they don't, then do what they want. I don't force that. That I voluntarily submit to that, and I've never got into trouble doing that. All the trouble I've ever got into, I've got into by plowing my own furrow. And I'm very careful who I've chosen to have as my sponsor. Very careful. So that's the caveat there. Second thing, I run through the first nine steps once a quarter, so four times a year. It I do it in a morning because there isn't much there but there is stuff there every time i'm quick because i've been doing this a long time and i clear the decks i do multiple step fives i share it it doesn't take long takes a few minutes to share the exact nature of my wrongs over the previous three months and then i put in place corrective measures in every area of my life every quarter of my life is now different than the previous one because of this i don't wait till the muck hits the fan i my pre- preemptive strike against the resurgence of the ego. And the third thing is I'm a, I've am become the most crashing bore when it comes to God, when I'm, when I'm not attending to something, when I'm not working, when I'm not talking to a sponsee, when I'm not watching the latest thing on Netflix or playing the piano or doing the other fun things that I do. When I'm not doing that, I am thinking about God, I am talking to God, I am meditating, I'm listening to meditation uh, 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 books. Um, uh, because I know how I know that that is the core of my life. I'm going to finish on this. In the big book, it, it, the, the, it says that consciousness of the presence of God becomes the central fact. About 27 years sober, even into 28 years sober, I was thinking, technically, that's true. God is the central fact of my life. But the consciousness of the presence of God is not. Today, it is because I made the decision. I'm going to make I'm going to become obsessed with the relationship with the higher power. I'm going to have that as the absolute core of everything. I'm going to nail this not in terms of expertise, but in terms of diligence and loyalty to my higher power. And I can say that the consciousness of the presence of God is the primary factor of my life today. And all it required, I'm not good at the spiritual stuff, I'm terrible at it, but I'm now diligent and single-minded. That comes first. Everyone's got their own path. I've got my own path. If you send me a message, I'll tell you what it is. May be good for you, may not. Doesn't matter. But to find one and follow it. So that's my topic, is having a consciousness of the presence of God. How about that for a topic? There we go. That's enough for me. Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you, Tim. Amazing as always. The meeting is now open for participation on or questions to anyone from anyone. Please limit your sharing to under five minutes and our chairperson will be responsible for keeping the meeting on topic. The topic for tonight's meeting is, sorry, could you repeat that, Tim?
1: Yes, consciousness of the presence of God.
0: Thank you. If you do not have any experience with this topic, as it is outlined in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, we ask that you limit your sharing. Two questions only. Um, Lisa, would you like to go first?
2: Thank you. So um, I've really enjoyed your share, Tim. Thank you for um, sharing on your journey in AA. Um, my question really is because I, like you, went through adult child, Al Anon, and um, you know, blamed it all on my family history, my alcoholism. But I'm really struggling at the moment. Um, just listening to you talk about that lower mind and higher mind. I, it's my emotional state. You know, you haven't had a drink for 29 years. I went seven years without a drink and I drank again. So I didn't have step one. But it's my emotional state. it It's those character defects because I haven't worked the steps. How do you... You did say that you redo the steps, you know, regularly. But I, my emotional state with my son is just something that happens to me that um, I just become this emotional wreck, really. And I just need to, to sort of ask that question about the emotional pain that your family can cause you. Because I don't have that pain with anyone else only my son and I I really act badly so my defects really I I can't do anything about because they have to not be improved they have to be removed because I'm shameful of how I speak you know and how I think so just about the emotional sobriety part how did you deal with that I'd like to ask
1: I think that's an excellent question. And that's a very common question and you're not alone. That's a very common difficulty. Um, uh, Feelings. Uh, My feelings are neither good nor bad. They just are, but if they're out of whack, they tend to grab the steering wheel, okay? So the problems are not bad, but they can be a bit, the, sorry, the feelings are not good or bad themselves, but they have a habit of, of, of pulling me out of out of the, the, the beam, pulling me off the beam. So the real question is where the feelings come from. Now, my understanding of this, I'm not a psychologist, so this is just my Experience as a human being that thinks about stuff sometimes and has experienced a few things. I think the image with what feelings are. In my kitchen, there are foods. Sometimes there are flowers. Sometimes there's stuff that there's nasty stuff that's gone off in the fridge. There are things down the back of the cooker. There are the there are the bins, the trash cans. There are all sorts of different smells. Some are good and some are bad in my life there are lots of feelings some are good and some are bad but they don't exist on their own if there is a smell the smell is coming from something it's not it's not autonomous it's the consequence of something else what is it the consequence of a feeling in my understanding is the is the perceptible bit of a thought Every thought has a feeling associated with it, either positive or negative. I had to learn how to become aware. So I I was aware of the feelings, but I needed to learn how to become aware of the thought that was behind the feeling. If you can get to the thinking that's behind the feeling, you change the thinking, the feeling will change. And that's what the whole purpose of step four is, is to understand what, what have I been thinking. So as we get down to causes and conditions, the three inventories, they start with the emotions of resentment or upset in all its forms, fear and guilt, because that's the bit you're aware of. And then you drill down say, for me to be feeling that, what must I have been thinking? What was my plan? Self-seeking. What am I after? What am I frightened of? Where am I dishonest? Lots of other questions. Not that many questions, a few other questions. Uh, and it's just like with when you've got very heavily stained clothes. The clothes need to go through the washing machine a few times to get really The first run through the washing machine is not going to clean everything perfectly. The first run through the steps is not going to clean everything perfectly. It'll get you up and running again if you complete the amends. Very, very important. The first nine steps are a package deal. Um, If if you've got an electric cable and you're running the electric cable from, let's say, an air conditioning unit to the socket in the wall where the power comes from, Let's say there's 10 meters, 10 yards, and you're one inch short. The cable is one inch short of the socket. You can't plug it in. You'll get no air conditioning. And it's like that with the amends. If I've got 100 amends, when the, when I'm one amend short of completing it, I still don't have power. It's the last amend which creates the circuit which activates God in my life. Until I completed step nine, God was theoretical and I got glimpses. When I completed step nine, God became real. So it's very important to complete the first nine steps and then you won't be out of the woods completely. There'll be a massive change. Then it takes, it. it's taken me years to sort for each of my areas of my life to get sorted out by God. And even now, Things are getting sort of every, as I say, every, my life is incredibly interesting to me because things are changing Why? does I keep doing the steps. Um, but now there's one extra thing I want to talk about, which is these automated reactions to family, which feel as though they're in a completely different category to other situations. Now, sometimes one can have, Situations with sponsees, with bosses, with authority figures at passport offices, at the DMV, because the situation psychologically is reminiscent of my relationship with a family member. Now, it, it's, these are terribly difficult because the mind moves so quickly, you can't see what it's doing. I was in New Hampshire recently. Lucky me, you might say. Uh, I was in New Hampshire recently, and we had chipmunks. I make it sound like an infestation. It wasn't an infestation. They were just a few chipmunks. And on the deck, when the chipmunks move, they're in one place. And then they're suddenly in another place, and you barely see them move from one to another. They just leap, and then they're in a different position and just but this you don't see the movement now it's exactly like that in relationships with families or other other trigger points the feeling has happened but you can't see what caused it there's the action and then there's my reaction what is in between now when airplanes crash heaven forbid but when they do there's the black box recorder which is the flight recorder, which records everything that happened. And what I think we get good at by doing the steps again and again is unpicking those situations and looking at what the thinking was, what the beliefs were, which were underlying the reaction. And what I go from is being completely automated to what happens now is I've got a pause time. And in that pause, Tom, my friend Tom says, you get one second pause for every year of recovery. So I've got 29 seconds of pause before I react on a good day. I was on the phone to a doctor's surgery about my uh, very elderly mother. She's in her, she's thousands of years old. And I was on the phone to the doctor's surgery trying to get some information and they were being obstructive or at least I perceived them to be, I think, no, I think they were being obstructed. They weren't being as helpful as they could have been. I got someone else later. They were much more helpful. Anyway, in the pause time, before I reacted, I was pausing for so long, they hung up because they thought I'd hung up because I was silent for so long without reacting. Um, Now, joking aside, the pause is something which develops. But, more than that those very very tense situations what what has to happen is what is i have to find my what my underlying belief is and let's say because i would get those reactions that you get with the family i would get those in the workplace when i was criticized for any of my work i would get an email with client feedback in the subject line and my whole world would turn, turn upside down. My stomach would start churning. My heart would start beating. Um, I had to train myself over months and years to think differently. It was my underlying beliefs that I was so, my, I, my three things, identity, value, purpose. Who am I? How much am I worth? Why am I here? Was invested in something in the material world. That's where it's all coming from. Those beliefs, we've got to. Uh, I think we've got to uncover them, and then work very deliberately on changing the beliefs about who we are, how much we're worth, how much we're we worth. We're of infinite value just because we exist. Page twenty-eight of the Big Book. And why are we here? To bring light. To wake up. Have a spiritual awakening. Help others to have a spiritual awakening. But that needs to be not just understood in passing, that needs to be deliberately fostered. And I spend maybe two hours a day with deliberately fostering thoughts like, I am a perfect child of God. What God wants for me is health and happiness and harmony and love and joy and peace and connection. What God wants for Susan, what God wants for Mary is health, happiness, harmony, love, joy, peace and connection. God's will is going to be done through me in their lives. God's will is going to be done through them in my life. I've got these new tapes which are running the whole time so that when disaster strikes and some tough stuff has happened in the last three months, when disaster strikes, not only do I have a pause, but it doesn't worm its way in the way it used to. So I'm sorry that's a long answer, but it's because the answer to the question is a long answer. It's not a simple, just look at this page, you'll be fine. It needs explaining this. So um, apologies for going on about that, but I'm gonna shut up at at this point.
0: Thank you.
3: Wendy. Hi, Wendy, alcoholic, (laughs) addict, compulsive overeater. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I got so much out of it. The whole time everyone shared, something was running through my mind. Um, Something that transpired uh, yesterday and the absolute poor behavior I had. Um, You know, I had a rug and somebody, my son who's stubborn like me, um, I wanna go, oh, he's stubborn, where did he get that from? But I'm stubborn too. Didn't like where I put a rug down. And just because he's stubborn and doesn't go along with what I want, we have a tendency to battle more. And um, I had taken him to the holy house in the morning and they were talking about respecting parents. So I turned this rug issue into a, you're a sinner. (laughs) You're a sinner now. It said, respect your parents. And I made this big fiasco and I fought. And the reason why I wanted this rug that he didn't decide that he agreed and liked was because I was trying to protect the carpet underneath, and he did not want the rug here. We got into a huge, huge uh, fiasco, and now I've turned my son into almost Satan over a rug. But this is who I am, you know. And and I made it about respecting parents and this and that. And then somebody called me from the program and was doing like an 11, you know, verbal like 11 step with me. And so I shared what happened. And what I found out was, I convinced my son that he was defective. I convinced him that he was disrespectful. Um, I verbally attacked him. And the truth is, the real truth is, I am in financial fear. And if my rug gets destroyed, the rug underneath the rug, who's, you know, going to take care of me. And then the real fear is it's not about my son being disrespectful. It had nothing to do with my son. Everything had to do with me. So God bless the people in our lives who, um, you know, help us grow and learn. Um, when I got off the phone, I knew I needed to make an amends because I, I shamed him. I guilted him. I made him feel like a bad child. And the truth was, it was all based on my fear of not having enough. And if I don't have enough, nobody's going to want to be with me, which is another fear. And I'm going to be alone the rest of my life. So one fear, the fear of being alone, led to the fear of not having money. You know, it was just like this dominoes effect. But but conversing with him, I had this poor kid's you know, almost into a sinner type position, just based on my fear alone. I can't guarantee that's not going to happen again. I cannot in my position, I can make the amends, but it looks like in my life, right with where I'm at right now, it's probably going to transpire again. Um, the only thing that saved me was that phone call from somebody else and running through the resentment and then somehow saying some prayers, the truth came to me. And um, how do you get from calling somebody a disrespectful little, when it was all about me? It was all about me. It was me and my relationship with God. So that's all. Thank you. Thank you. Susan?
4: Hi, everyone. I'm Susan, and I'm a recovered alcoholic. Thank you, Tim. Really, really, really. I was going to say enjoy your talk, but it was more than enjoy. It was learning, and um, you can't know too much about this program and how um, how you can w- improve yourself to work it or work work to improve yourself. Anyway, I have a problem because when I talk to people it's like everything ends in fear but to me everything ends in abandonment that I was abandoned. well my family was abandoned by my father when I was a kid and um, every relationship I ever had it was a fear of the person abandoned me and that's how I still think and when people start talking about fear fear to me is nothing because um, abandonment is more and I don't know if this is wrong or what I should be doing with it I just um anyway could you give me a quick little answer I don't
1: want to take up too much of your time. Uh, I'm happy. I th- I'm happy to. I think you, you've raised a, an interesting point there, Susan, about abandonment. Um, In my case, and well, I'm probably not the only one, the real abandonment is when I abandoned my higher power. It was when at some point in my prehistory it's as though god was saying just be part of the choir with me Every, everyone's together everything is one there's just this one what imagine a sort of oneness of beauty and music and light and i say i no 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 i want the solo I want to be special. I want to stand out. I want to exist. I don't want to be, I don't want to melt into the background. You know that line in the 12 and 12? A worker amongst workers. Everyone groans at that because, well, who am I then? The hole in the donut. I did not want to be just dissolved into the universe. I wanted to exist. I wanted a name. I wanted to look a particular way. I want to achieve something. I want to have things. I want me to be over here and you to be over there. I want people to disagree with. If everyone agrees, who am I? If I've got people to disagree with, I'm something. I have an identity now. Any identity I have is me abandoning God. But that's a You see, my ego does not want me to know that. If I realize the problem is that I've abandoned God, I think, oh, my God, I made this terrible mistake. Look at the results I'm getting from thinking I'm a physical body running around the material world, largely made of water. (laughs) I'm going to go back to God. And as soon as I go back to God and dissolve back into that oneness and music and light and beauty, I have no further use for the ego. So the ego is fighting for its survival. What does it do? It it blinds me to what I've done, but it can't conceal it altogether. So what do I see? I see everyone else abandoning me. I see abandonment wherever I look. But what I'm seeing is my own abandonment of God. But I see it all around me. Whatever I repress in myself, I will... A friend of mine, an acquaintance of mine, he's not a friend, he's an acquaintance of mine. I'd love him to be a friend, but he's an acquaintance. says, if you go through the world thinking that you're nice, but surrounded by lots of people who aren't, You're surrounded by people with problems. You're surrounded by people with issues. You're surrounded. It's very fashionable to say, oh, in the world we live in today, the world's gone crazy. Lots of things like that. Everyone's at war with each other. But you think you're the nice one with tears of, 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 of sympathy dripping down your face. What he says is you're the one with the issues, but you don't like to see them but you can't get away from your rejection of other people so you see them as rejecting you. The truth is I cannot be abandoned because when my mind is open, I'm I'm just connected, I'm just fine. So the block is within me and then gets projected out. And that is, if those ideas are not familiar, they're not gonna go in straight away So if I haven't gone in, don't worry about it. It took me years to get it, but you've got to start somewhere. So I don't know if that has helped or hindered Susan, but that's my take on pandemic. Thank you. I sort of thought some of
4: that when I did the fourth step and realised how much my resentments were caused by me.
0: Great question, Susan. Anybody else got any questions or like to say anything?
1: Michelle's got a hand up.
0: Michelle, please.
5: Hi, everybody. I'm Michelle. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. I I took so many notes. I learned so much. Um, Just along the lines, I guess, of what what was said before, um, I'm uh, just a year sober uh, after a relapse um, and I had, you know, four and a half years, but um, you know, I, I am able, I'm, I'm dealing with this incredible fear of um, public speaking. Um, I am leading a meeting in regular AA and, you know, all week I'm, I'm praying my butt off for, for to for God to, to take away this fear. And it's just not going, you know, and, and in other aspects of my life, I feel like I can either ask for the, the defect to be removed or I can turn over the issue to my higher power. But this this thing is like, you know, got me. Um it's a really tough one. And I don't know if it's if it's a situation And I've had this my whole life, you know, this fear of public speaking. But even in AA, where honestly people don't give a hoot what you say, you know what I mean? And there's no like judgment and all that. So it shouldn't be an issue. But you know, I guess my question is to you is, you know, are there things, are there call it character fears that just that just hang on for a while? I'm new at this, so I don't really know
1: about that. Thank you. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And if you know anyone who is 20, 22, 25, 27 years sober and you get them to tell the truth, you'll get, you'll hear, and maybe at any length of sobriety, you'll hear them say similar things about something or other. And the trap that I fell into was thinking, this, I'm just going to have to live with forever. I guess I'll just have to put up with being upset about whatever it is. Um, so much so that actually you know, there's a rabbit hole I could go into, but I ha- I actually have resemblance against certain laws of physics for about 23, 24 years so, but they were ugly. But what it all, you see it, All fear boils down to a single thing, I believe, which is death. There, I said it. Um, If I believe I'm a physical body doomed to decay and die, my biologist friends, of whom I have none, uh, reliably inform me that as soon as you're born, you're disintegrating. Uh, Your skin ain't never going to be as good as it is the day you're born. Um, Planets die. Stars blow up. Universes, I'm told by my physicist friends of whom I have none, will eventually collapse and be replaced by other ones, or there may be many universes. But nothing, la- nothing in the material world lasts. Everything is spreading out. And there's a, there's a Woody Allen film where this kid won't do his homework. And he's seven in Brooklyn. And his parents say, why won't you do your homework? He says, the universe is endlessly expanding. What's the point? A friend of mine First became depressed when he was, I don't know, a fifth grader, a sixth grader. If you're British, you'll have to look up what that means. Ten or eleven. And. It got to the end of the summer. And he realized that the summer was going and that summer would never come back. And there was going to be the whole of the autumn and the winter and the spring before another summer. Um. My, uh, what, what do you call them, white whales after Moby Dick, um, the novel. The nemesis, the thing, the, the one thing which is going to get mine was about environmental stuff. And I still give a ton of money to environmental causes. I still think it's the right thing to work towards that. As so my personal view, there we go. Some people disagree, fine. That's not the point. The point is, I would wake up with panic attacks in the middle of the night thinking about the environment at 20 years sober. I don't anymore. I still, in the material realm, treat it as super important. But when I realized I'm the actor playing a role in my physical form, I could care less ultimately what happens to the character. My job as an actor is to do a good job playing the character. If you're playing one of the parts in Macbeth, there's going to be blood on the carpet by the end of the show. If you as the actor identified with the character who's going to get stabbed or whatever else, you're going to go down with the character. You're going to go down with the ship. So the answer to all of those fears that won't budge, it's the last place the ego is hiding. Because what it wants is for me to believe I am a physical body and I'm in danger. And there's nothing more dangerous in the world than having other egos looking. So I understand why you've got that fear, because I had that as well. But the, the answer is it's not tackling the fears one by one. It's recognizing I've got false beliefs in there. And those false beliefs need to be overturned. And whether you use A Course in Miracles or Emmett Fox or um, Ernest Holmes or Buddhism or whatever else you use, a system which reminds me on a daily basis that I am spirit that happens temporarily to be running around in a physical form. Then the fear goes. And. um I don't hold with having fear. When it arises, I deal with it by going to straight to God and affirming spiritual principles. At the moment, I'm getting a lot out of Ernest Holmes. I'm getting a lot out of Emmett Fox and A Course in Miracles. There have been different things at different times, but I've picked a system of thought and I've gone with it, and it has is, it is swept those fears out of my life. That's what I've got on the topic.
0: Thanks so much, Tim. Excellent. Thanks um, for a great talk tonight. And um, that brings us to the end of the meeting. Could someone please step in and lead the after meeting, please? I can hang in. Thank you. Thank you very much. Who was that? That's Sheila. Thank you. Thanks very much. And uh, we'll close the meeting with a seven-step prayer. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove every single defected character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out of here to do your bidding. Amen. Thank you, Tim, again, and uh, the after meeting, I'll hand over to you, Sheila.